Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast. Back to full. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Part of the Over the Monster Network. Swinging a high deep drive to right field. That one's called to the right. Hunter on the move. Racing back. It's over his head. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. Presented by SB Nation. It hasn't happened at Fenwick Park for 95 years. The Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. Here comes a 1-2 pitch. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. High He crushed it! It's a grand slam! Wow! I'm telling you, it's time to party! Got it! 300 strikeouts in 2017 for Chris Sale. An absolute strikeout machine. 13 tonight against the Baltimore Orioles. They're all loaded. High fly ball, deep in the left center field. Way back it carries. And that ball is gone! The Red Sox walk it off in style. That's how it's done. The X-Man strikes. Fly ball to deep left center field. Devers has hit it out! takes Chapman the other way to tie the game. 
Welcome back to the Over the Monster podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined by Keaton DeRocher of Over the Monster and the Dynasty Guru. Keaton, welcome back to the show. The Red Sox season is finally over. It sure is. Our long uh, national nightmare has ended, and now our uh, next long national nightmare of... How are they going to mess up Mookie Betts can begin, and we can start to overanalyze that. Yeah, we're going to have an absolute ton to talk about this offseason, and we'll be with you on a regular basis throughout the offseason. We're not sure how frequently, but we'll definitely be with you pretty frequently, certainly as news breaks. But um, I just wanted to start off this show by kind of giving some numbers and putting in perspective where the Red Sox finished this year, um, the team finishes 84 and 78, just uh, six games over 500. Not a whole lot there. Um, their run differential was plus 73, which is good enough for seventh best in the American League behind all of the playoff teams, as well as the Indians who finished ahead of them in the standings. So those were very predictive. They were also seventh in runs allowed at 828 and fourth in runs scored at 901. Um my takeaways from this, Keaton, are that, you know, we've talked about this a number of times, but pitching is certainly what cost the team the most in 2019. Um, and the offense, even though it did score over 900 runs and had some sublime individual offensive performances, was in large part feast or famine and especially struggled in, in uh, areas of uh, situational hitting. So those two things kind of just sabotaged the team all year round. And, you know, we saw the pitching fail again today in game 162 with Eddie going for his 20th win. Yeah. Um, it really kind of seemed like a, just like a microcosm for the season, right? Like Eduardo Rodriguez pitched a great game. He had Bogart's endeavors, like driving in all the runs. Then the bullpen blew it. <laughs> and then, uh, Devers and Mookie saved the day, which that piece was new. <laughs> that really hadn't happened really yeah. all season. Um, so uh, maybe it wasn't a perfect microcosm, but it just kind of felt like everything was going their way. They had uh, Devers get to 200 hits. They got the lead, so Eduardo Rodriguez was in line for his 20th win, and then the bullpen blew it, and this kind of felt very 2019. And I think that the offense got – um, more of a spotlight shown on them because of the offensive struggles. Like, we, I mean, we talked in the beginning of the season over and over again about just the struggles with like runners in scoring position and how much they had nights where they were like one for 14 or just like 0 for 9, 0 for 10. Uh, and it really it showed up more due to like just terrible pitching performances because there's more of a spotlight on um, they're playing Toronto and they're down a run, and they've stranded 12 runners. But they shouldn't be in a position where we have to talk about how many runners they've stranded against a terrible Toronto team. <laughs> so um, I'm not really um, – there. there's going to be times where the offense is like that, and they should be able to overcome it. Mm-hmm. I think it, the, the, the major story for me is the starting pitching was just an absolute disaster, and it doomed them from the start. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, when you looked at this team on paper versus other American League contenders at the beginning of the season, it was the starting pitching that sort of separated them from other teams like the Yankees and uh, 
you know, I shouldn't say the Astros are Indians because they had strong rotations as well, but certainly like Oakland and Tampa Bay were teams that had more question marks in terms of their rotations. But, I mean, the Red Sox really couldn't do it all season long. It was inconsistency from Chris Sale early and then late, um, followed by being injured. Uh, He had a really good stretch in the middle. And then we also had Eduardo Rodriguez enjoying a great breakout season, one which was really particularly good in the second half of the year um, after kind of a mediocre first half. And then injuries to Eovaldi, ineffectiveness from Porcello. Uh, We just ran the gamut of, of stuff going wrong with the starting rotation. So I agree. If you have to take one thing, it was definitely the starting pitching that, that failed this team. I think the bullpen got a lot of flack and rightfully so Dave Dombrowski certainly failed at creating a unit that was good enough to succeed right off the bat, especially in the beginning of the season. But overall at the end of the year, it was, you know, less the bullpen and more the starting pitching, I think, that was the reason for them falling further and further and further behind uh, in this race as we got into August and later. Yeah, for the second season in a row, the bullpen got a little bit stronger as the season went on, became less of an issue. I mean, right off the bat, they had something ridiculous, like they were... Shoot, now it kind of annoys me that I don't remember exactly what it was. But they were like well under 500 in save attempts, and it was something like 6 for 14 within like the first month. Just an absolute disaster. But it was <clears throat> it was pretty bad overall. But the second half got a lot stronger, particularly when they made Workman the actual closer and stuck to that and actually gave people real roles within the bullpen. Then people started to kind of thrive within what their actual role was, which helped considerably. So I would hope going into next season, that's what we're going to have is people with defined roles. And maybe we'll have a bit stronger of a bullpen going into next season and not just have this mess. I think that's a great point, Keaton. And I think that um, the guy who's going to be, you know, number one under the microscope next year is certainly going to be Alex Cora. Um, Regardless of sort of what, whoever the new GM does when he comes in here. I think Cora probably learned a lot of lessons this season. One is you have to have your guys ready for spring training. Um, you can't take that approach that they tried to take the last year after such a deep postseason run. Um, and second, those defined roles were just such a huge thing. I mean, we saw the bullpen completely transform, like you said, after those guys got defined roles. And uh, they talked about that extensively as well. So I think... Alex Cora, I mean, this guy has had nothing but success since he came into baseball in a managerial capacity. So I think he was bound to have some sort of bumps in the road uh, along the way. It would be weird if everything was just perfect and smooth. But, you know, today in in the last game, I mean, he talked uh, on the headset to the Nesson guys and was pretty forthright with the fact that this was a disappointing year and that they'll be back next year. So. I am encouraged that Alex Cora is not going to make the same mistakes that he made this year going into next season. Yeah, I think so too. And we already started to see, when we talked about in the last pod, Cora's comments on how he's approaching this offseason. And it seemed like a stark difference from the previous one. It seemed back to how he approached the offseason the previous year when he was first hired to be the manager. So it already seems like he has uh, made a full 180 and is addressing this offseason in a much different manner, which I think is a a positive step forward for 
what should hopefully be a different spring training and a different look for the team, a different feel for the team and approach to what they do in preparation for the season next year. Yeah, and I think as we as we transition this podcast to talking about the team in 2020, um, we're going to obviously touch on, in a big way, the press conference, or not press conference, the media gathering, as they called it, on Friday, where they in- invited a select group of media to come um, to basically an informal presser where there were no TV cameras, and uh, it was John Henry, Tom Warner, Sam Kennedy, uh, talking about what what's in store for the team in 2020, and I think let's just get right into it here because there was so much to unpack, and this is kind of what we've been looking forward to since we both listened to this on Friday. Uh, but the first quote I want to talk about is one from John Henry where he says, This year we need to be under the CBT, and that was something we've known for more than a year now, Henry said. If you don't reset, there are penalties, so we've known for some time now that we need to reset as other clubs have done. So my question to you, Keaton, is the CBT that he's talking about is the first threshold of $208 million. How the hell is this team with this roster going to get under $208 million and not take a massive step back on the field? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not entirely sure. Um, there, I mean, if, in order to do that, I mean, and I think JD is either either going to have to be like, hey, can we pay you a lot less or can you leave? Yeah, I guess he, one one way to do it is by making JD feel really un, unwelcome and that he would be a burden by staying, which would really be sucky, but maybe <laughs> yeah. like the easiest thing to do. Yeah, and I hate that. I hate that too because he's been nothing but dynamite for this team over two years. Yep, he has. But I think like <laughs> trading price obviously would be my first hope. But there's no way they're going to do that and get rid of his entire contract. That's not happening. Um, the next stupidest thing would probably be trading sale. He would have a much larger market. Um. But he's still pretty darn good, so I'd prefer to have him on the team. Uh, get rid of Vivaldi for peanuts, which I wouldn't be totally opposed to, depending on like if that was part of a whole bunch of other moves to like restructure the entire roster rather than just like a one-off. I I mean, there's no like one fix-all. In order to do that, they're going to have to do some serious, like, Belichick salary cap manipulation kind of deal in order to make the money work to get under 208. And it's probably going to have to do with a lot of roster turnover. And it wouldn't surprise me if, I guess, I mean, well, if that's their intention, then yeah, I guess it wouldn't surprise me if they did. But I, I don't think it's going to be all that easy. I mean, by making this known... To, to everybody in the form of this media gathering and leaking this out there. Um, there the ownership is setting the stage for what's going to be a really uh, tumultuous winter in terms of the amount of turnover that they're going to have. And I think what this does is it really kind of solidifies that they do want J.D. Martinez to opt out, that guys like Mitch Moreland, Brock Holt, Steve Pierce, who might retire, um, you know, Sandy Leone, um, 
anybody who's sort of on the fringes of the roster or does things that can be repeated by someone else are almost certainly gone. At this point, I would put the chance of a guy like Brock Holt, who we've talked about at length, coming back at almost nothing. I would put it at less than 1%. See, I think he'll be back. I think they'll offer him something really little, like $1.5 million on a one-year deal, and, and just hoping that he'll take it to stay here and not want to go somewhere else. Do you really think his agent will let him take a deal like that? I have no idea. I mean, he's not going to go anywhere and start. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. You know, with the season that he's had, I'm not sure that there isn't a starting job out there somewhere for him. If someone's going to take, take a chance on him as a starter, then yeah, there's no way the Red Sox have any chance of keeping him at any kind of money level. Yeah, I think I think he's gone. I, I think one of the things we disagree about, though, and we sort of made a few roster mock-ups for what we think the roster could look at look like next year is the outfield. I think that even if JD opts out, that the Red Sox are very likely to trade an outfielder next year, and the guy who I had them trading was Jackie Bradley Jr., but you seem to think that they'll keep their outfield together. I do. Yeah, because I don't think um, he's going to cost all that much in arbitration, and uh, his defense... they. they they don't have anybody else, obviously, internally, so they're going to have to go uh, make a free agent move anyway. I would rather have him in the outfield. Um, like, you had Chavis out there. Uh, obviously, defensively, that would make the outfield worse just because the difference between JBJ defensively and Chavis defensively. I mean, JBJ defensively and anybody defensively is going to be a step down, except apparently maybe Steve Wilkerson. But... Um, it's, I think them having to, if they like trade JBJ and have to go somewhere else, I mean, I guess I'm not entirely sold on them having to put like Chavis or Dahlbeck out there as a, as the solution. I think they would end up having to sign or end up signing someone as a free agent anyway and spending money. So I feel like they would rather just keep JBJ rather than take a chance on one of their internal options or um, in whatever trade they do with JBJ, get an outfielder back. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I think that if they do trade JBJ, that they're likely to go after a major league piece that can come back and a major league piece that is less expensive. Um, I guess what might be an easier way to, to work this segment here. Uh, is for us to kind of just go through what our mock-ups were, who we think is going in and who we think is going out uh, for this team and talk about those a little bit. So do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I'll go first. Okay. So I have Vasquez at catcher, Dahlbuck at first, Scooter Jeanette at second, Bogey at short, Devers at third, Benning in left, JBJ in center, Betts in right, Chavis DHing. Um, do we just want to do the hitters first and then chat sure. and then do pitchers? Yeah, sure. So um, then the, Oh, did you want to do the whole bench? Oh, yeah, yeah, I was going to do the bench. Go for it. Go for so it. the bench I have Centeno as a second catcher, uh, them retaining Holt, Marco Hernandez, and Sam Travis. Okay, so you have a, a kind of a short bench. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I have uh, the same 
infield this year. Uh, Vasky, Dahlbeck, Scooter, Jeanette, Bogey, Devers. Uh, my outfield is a little bit different. In left field, I have Chavis. Uh, my center fielder is Benintendi, who moves over and then bets at right field. And I have, as a DH, uh, Justin Smoke being signed on a short money deal from Toronto. And for a bench, bearing in mind that they're moving to a 26-man roster next year, I have Juan Centeno, um, Hernandez, uh, Marco Hernandez, Sue Lin, who can also back up guys in the outfield. I kind of envision him as a, a late-inning defensive replacement in center field, pushing Benny over to left and keeping bets at right. I have Gorky Hernandez, and then I have Sam Travis. So I have a five-man bench there. They'll probably end up taking one of those guys away though all right so we both have scooter to net coming in and playing second yeah like so it. so i think we've talked about that on on this show before but i think both of us are just enthralled by what he could add to the offense and how little he could cost considering um his health woes and defensive struggles over the past few years um, so i think that makes a lot of sense um and you know i have them cutting corners by having a cost-controlled guy in Bobby Dahlbeck, a low-contract in Scooter Jeanette, a cost-controlled guy in Michael Chavis in the field, the $11 million or so that should be owed to JBJ moving out, and then a short-money deal to Justin Smoke. And, you know, I think he's probably going to get, like, a very small deal based on the year that he had, maybe, like, $4 million or something like that. And I also have them getting rid of Holt because I just don't see them paying him next year. Yeah, I have them retaining him, um, bringing in Scooter Jeanette, and then JBJ, either him doing it on his own or... So, where is your cost cutting in your your, in your bets? Uh, JD opting out. Okay, so just the JD opt out and Dahlbeck at first, right? Yep. Okay. I guess right. Jeanette being a low-cost free agent, I guess if you consider that as well okay so i definitely went with a more budget conscious starting lineup than you did i would say i mean the only difference is jbj and smoke right JBJ so it's a and difference smoke. of what maybe like four to six million dollars yeah yep i would say that's probably about right well and then you have to add in holt too Whatever you think Holt's going to get. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So we're probably looking at closer to 10. 10 million bucks. Yeah. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumba no purchase necessary btw 
Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, let's move to the rotations. Um, who'd you have in your rotation? Chris Sale, David Price, Erod, Michael Waka, Tanner Roark, then a bullpen, Will Smith, Brandon Workman, Matt Barnes, Darwin's and Hernandez, Josh Taylor, Marcus Walden, Travis Lakins, and Brian Johnson, who never seems to go away. All right. I had Sale, Erod, Cole Hamels, Nate Eovaldi, Tanner Roark, and for my bullpen, I had Brandon Workman as the closer, Matt Barnes uh, as setup man, Will Harris as a setup man, he's a free agent, um, Darwinson Hernandez, Josh Taylor, Marcus Walden, and Travis Lakins. So it's interesting, we both had Tanner Roark there. So we, yeah. we both think that he's going to be a low-cost alternative for this outfield but i think they're gonna find a ticker for price uh and you think they're gonna find a ticker for eovaldi yeah i think that's gonna be way easier and so why do you think it's gonna be easier to find a ticker for him um mainly the i mean i know they both kind of have injury issues but evaldi was at least pitching at the end of the year uh showed some good results his contract is in a lot better shape than price uh, and price, I mean, yeah, it's just the health concerns and the massive contract. They're going to have to eat some of Price's deal if they make a trade, and I'm not convinced that it would be, like, equal or more than what they would end up paying of Aldi to kind of, like, make that trade off, if you know what I mean. So who do you think's rotation's going to cost more, mine or yours? Well, mine, because I have sale and price in it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you have sale and price. So I, I guess um, I think that ours will cost almost the same um, because I kind of envision that they're going to cover about half of the cost of the price contract to whomever they send David Price to. Um, and I think that they'll probably give Cole Hamels like a $16 million, maybe $15 million over like two-year contract. Um, so I guess at the end of the day i think that we're gonna have similarly priced rotations i just think that by sending out david price you're going to get something useful back whether that's uh you know a bench player or a bullpen piece or just prospects Um, so i guess that's what i was kind of looking for there and i think that you know cole hamels is a really interesting piece he's another lefty obviously um very durable guy um, going into his age 36 season. So I don't think you'd have to give him anything that long. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess it wouldn't really surprise me. I think for mine, um, Waka is a bit of a shot in the dark because I'm thinking where the new general manager is, is going to want to make some sort of a splash um, or as much of a splash as they can to kind of like put their stamp on it. And that would kind of, I mean, I know he's been really inconsistent over the past couple of years, but I think that's what makes him really attractive <laughs> is his inconsistency because he could be a low risk, high reward option. And if he pans out, he'll look really good and kind of fortify that rotation. Um, so that was, I was look for that other person in the rotation. That's kind of where I was going. I was, trying to look for someone who could make a splash um, obviously would carry risk, which would lower their cost. 
Um, and so uh, when I was looking at all the free agents, Waka kind of stood out as that person. Originally, I had Julio Teheran, but I was like, nah, that's going to cost way too much. So yeah. I went with Michael Waka instead. I think Waka would cost even less than what uh, Cole Hamels would cost. I think he'd be less than him by like $5 million, probably. Yeah, I would think so. Um, so I do like that. I just think it is an extreme risk as well. Um, one yeah. of the things I've been thinking about is if they wanted to go super cost conscious here, one of the things they could do would be to retain uh, Julius Chassin in lieu of maybe signing somebody like a Tanner Roark. So to go with maybe one of the higher upside guys like a Hamels, and instead of paying Tanner Roark like eight or nine million bucks a year, pay Julius Chassin like close to nothing. Um, and save a little bit of money there. Yeah, that's true. I mean, minus his last outing, he actually surprisingly didn't look all that bad, which was pretty shocking. Yeah, and he's just you know a year from a year removed from being a fairly good pick, pitcher. Um, our bullpens were significantly different, though. Um, in my bullpen, my only addition was Will Harris, um, and I have him slotting in as a setup guy right behind Barnes. Uh, Will Harris is going to be also going into his age 36 season. He pitched really well with uh, the Astros this year. He's a righty, so I see their lefties still being just Darwinson and uh, Josh Taylor there. Um, but you have a pretty big uh, addition to, to your bullpen in Will Smith. Yeah, Brandon Workman has been great, but I would love him as a setup man to Will Smith being a closer. Uh, and really fortifying the back end. Having like Barnes and Workman as the setup men to Will Smith, Darwins and Hernandez as your kind of Swiss Army knife dude. Josh Taylor is um, like an emergency guy, and then Walden and Lakin's there. Brian Johnson is your long relief fellow. I like my bullpen a lot more than yours. I do too. I just think that your bullpen is going to cost $10 million more than mine. It probably will, yeah. So overall, I think when we when we compare these rosters uh, that we've both made, I think yours is going to be more expensive by probably fifteen to twenty million bucks. Um, but I also think you have the better roster there, so it's going to be interesting when arbitration figures comes out and you know we figure out what they're going to do. But both of us tried to do this exercise without trading bets, um, yep. <laughs> which made it significantly more difficult. Um, when asked what I thought this team could win for games, I think that the roster that they've that I've created here, barring health, could win between eighty three and ninety three games. I think that's sort of like a, a eighty. I think I wrote eighty five and ninety three <coughs> wins. Um, I don't see how this version of the team would be significantly worse than what we got this year. No, in any sort of way. I agree. I think that your roster would be better than what we had this year. And I think, I think that yours, if everybody's healthy, would be like challenger for the World Series. Yeah, I think so too. I was thinking like 93 to 97. Yeah, I agree. So, But I, but I think what we outlined is two paths, right? If they're yeah. really serious about being under the CBT, I think it might look a little bit more like my roster they're really serious about continuing to contend then i think it might look a lot like your roster so we're gonna have to see when figures come out but you know it's it's interesting yeah and um 
I looked back at last year. So MLB trade rumors, arbitration estimates are usually pretty damn close to actuals. And they put theirs out usually the first like 10 days of October. Um, so it might be right around the corner when we can kind of revisit this in a couple weeks and see uh, the numbers on where our rosters actually fall. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun to, to follow that up. Yeah. Um, let's move on here from this exercise to the the next topic here, and this is team president or uh, one of the one of the team uh, owners, I should say, Tom Warner, when talking about Mookie Betts. He said, "Team president Sam Kennedy and I actually had a nice conversation with Mookie's agent on a couple of topics uh, on a couple of different topics a couple of weeks ago." Warner said. We think he's one of the great players in baseball. Hopefully that's a meeting of the minds going forward. Hopefully there's a meeting of the minds going forward. So uh, let me ask you this, Keaton. We both tried to do this exercise, like I said, without trading bets. We don't want it to happen. Um, but there seems to be so much friggin' smoke when it comes to this bets thing. What do you think the odds of them re-signing bets and extending him to, to a contract extension uh, this offseason are? I still think it seems really low. Like, ow. Um, maybe 10%, 10 to 15%. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, man. And it makes me wonder, like, if they really are resigned to the fact that they're going to have to trade uh, Mookie Betts, then I don't see any reason why they wouldn't also trade Jackie Bradley Jr. and try to find a taker for price and use next year as a bridge year. Like, if you're trading bets, I feel like that's the smartest thing to do by far. Yeah, I agree. I would agree. I mean, I wouldn't be all that thrilled about it, but I would agree. Yeah, clear house, reset, you know, be aggressive at the deadline, restock your farm. Um, You know, you can afford to do that now that you have Bogart's locked up and, you know, um, Vasquez under contract and, you know, a bunch of these guys under contract. The, uh, the other thing is the ownership has said that they're going to be aggressive in talking to Rafael Devers about ex- uh, extending him and buying out his arb years so they don't run into huge arb raises with, uh, with him. Yeah, I wonder if they try and like uh like go the Braves route and try and um like do an eight year hundred million dollar uh, like the the Braves did with Acuna because I still think that would be a steal for what you would get with Devers and that would have him locked up long term for peanuts. Um but I mean we saw it was really last year where like extension city broke out and so i kind of expect they'll probably take a shot at giving that a try i mean that'd be a coup for the new gm if he could sign an eight-year hundred million dollar contract for rafael devers that would take him from 23 to 30 um that's probably when you want to own rafael devers considering the body questions that he has yeah absolutely yeah that'd be an amazing deal and i think that they'd be very smart to to try that and you know, I kind of agree with you about the bets thing. All right, next big quote from these guys. Um, 
which is sort of telling you about where they are with the GM search. Um, and this is all from the Jen McCaffrey athletic article. She did a great job of getting all these quotes together. Uh, it said, Henry was dismissive of the idea that one of them was ready to take over the full-time job, meaning the four people who are currently running the organization. And Henry says, it's possible, but this is a tough job. This is a tough offseason too. We talked about the challenge of the CBT, but there are, you would all agree, uh, but there are, you would all agree, this is a challenging offseason. Um, so to put one of the candidates you keep bringing up in charge and responsible for that, that's sort of a tough way to start your career as a general manager. So we are starting the search looking outward. Um, and what this seems to mean to me is that the candidate is certainly going to come from outside the organization. And this has run counter to what a lot of the people on the Red Sox beat have thought was going to happen uh, really over the last couple weeks since Dombrowski has been fired. So this this was maybe the most surprising thing uh, to come out of the press conference for me. Yeah, me too. And, um, I mean, I know it's going to be tough, but, um, like a tough situation, but I don't think that the internal options that the Red Sox have would be incapable of handling it. So that was kind of surprising, which maybe that's their way of, saying um we know it's tough we're probably gonna have to fire them whoever we hire in a couple years anyway so let's bring the next lamb in here and then when they're gone one of these guys can take over for a longer term position (laughs) so um that just came to me now i have literally nothing to back that up (laughs) as to why that would be the case but i don't know maybe it is but i did feel bad about not having anybody to bring to the table last pod um, so I did a little bit of research, and I got three names for you. Okay. Uh, Jed Hoyer, current GM of the Cubs. Great one. Yeah, like that name. Jason McLeod, uh, VP of Cubs Player Development. Oh, you're going Cubs heavy, huh? A little bit. A little okay. bit, yeah. Both of those guys are uh, really great options. Obviously, um, Hoyer, I mean, the Cubs are going through some turnover, so if Hoyer... Uh, wanted to bounce and kind of get a fresh start. Now would be a great time. And why not bring him back to the Red Sox? Okay. Who's your third guy? Uh, Jared Banner, Mets farm director. I know what you're saying. The Mets. Are you serious? <laughs> yes, I am serious. <laughs> um, bit of an off-the-wall one, but um, as far as uh, the Mets farm goes, uh, it's actually pretty solid. It's just the major league where things kind of get a little weird. Uh, but he's a real analytical dude. I like analytics, uh, and he's done really well with the farm and uh, with the Mets. And I just thought that uh, for the, if they're looking for an off the wall, uh, young, ambitious fella, um, then there you go. And actually has uh, some Red Sox ties from um, back in the late aughts. So, hmm. so you're going pretty heavy with the uh, the getting back in bed with the Theo mindset here. Yeah. Yeah, I am. It's interesting. Um, I kind of had an opposite take uh, of what you had mentioned before, and I want to get back to that when you were like, oh, this is just the guy who's going to be kind of the sacrificial lamb before we actually hire one of these four people in the org when they're ready. I kind of think that the, the ownership being really cognizant because they were asked a lot about, you know, whether or not this is an unappealing job to people outside because there's been so much turnover. They're very like defensive about that. Um, 
obviously, as anybody would be when when that's brought up. But I kind of think that whoever takes this job next, uh, who, whoever comes in from, from the outside, is going to be like left alone for a really long time. Uh, and I kind of think that they're going to try and dispel that notion of them being meddling owners, which makes me think that they're going to take their time with this search and hire somebody from outside the organization with a long track record. I don't think that John Henry can help himself putting his hands in the pot. And I think um, because of apparently, why don't, well, why don't you get to the next quote before I uh, say my next part? Cause it kind of ties into that. Okay. Um, so the final quote here is, um, what changed quickly was right after the World Series, we had preliminary talks about our way forward, and it was clear to me we weren't on the same page at that point. And this is John Henry talking about his discussions with Dave Dombrowski. <clears throat> so my question to you uh, here is then why the hell did Dave Dombrowski, um, why, w- why the hell was he allowed to spend like a lunatic on the sale extension the Evaldi contract, bringing back Pierce, all these different things that put put the team in the hellacious position that they're in right now. No freaking clue. Right. Uh, and honestly, if that was the case, then re-signing Chris Sale is completely out of the question. Not even like a, a wait and see how he this year plays out and then approach it at the end of the season. Knowing that even with the season that he had, he was still going to have an incredibly pricey tag, like, there's if that was the case if they wanted to uh, get under the 208 million dollars immediately after the world series then chris sale shouldn't have been resigned at all no he shouldn't have none but, of these none of those guys should have been resigned so he was hands off last off season and now they're in the situation that they're in now so i think that we have plenty of examples from theo to charrington um to well i mean they brought in dombrowski to kind of dispel that notion that they were hands-on and then now we have this like we were hands-off we thought things would change and now we're in the situation we are now so i think when they bring someone in they're not going to be hands-off again because they're afraid that shit's going to get worse or this is going to happen again so i think they're going to be back into hands-on yeah i don't know it's really tough for me to say i I think that John Henry, one of the things that he talked about a lot in this press conference was that he's been in baseball for 21 years and he's got all this experience now. And by and large, this ownership has done really well after these mini transitions. Like when they transition, you know, from Theo to Charrington, Charrington wins the World Series. They transition from Charrington to Dombo, Dombo wins the World Series. You know, the transition from Duquette to Epstein, Epstein wins the World Series. So these things like... They have gone well for these guys, but I do think that ownership is recognizing that the game is different than when they had to be more hands-on and when that was more beneficial. And I think the rules are so complex now um, that they're going to have to find themselves a new method of dealing with this in a way that's more hands-off, kind of like the way that the Hank Steinbrenner is currently dealing with... uh, with Cashman, and I know you don't believe that they're capable of that, uh, of being that hands off, but I'm not sure if they do this again. Yes, but I just I'm not positive that that's the way because I think we all recognize when Dombrowski was hired that he was going to have a shelf life, 
we knew what he was coming in here to do and we recognized that he came in here and did exactly what he was supposed to do and now that he's gone like we all accept that because what he's not good at is transition so that made a lot of sense and that begs the question that why did you wait this long for the turnover so he was brought in to push them over the edge, make some tough decisions to win a World Series. He won a World Series. And then immediately after the World Series, you were already miles apart on the way that the the direction that the club was going to continue to go. I mean, I know that it would literally only be this front office that would fire someone after winning the World Series. But if you didn't agree on what was happening and you disagreed on the deals that they were making and you didn't want to sign off on them, why would you sign off on them and allow things to get worse just for fun, I guess. I don't understand that at all. I think they did it just for optics and human reasons, right? Just because, like, everybody in their mother would have rolled over in their grave if, you know, they had fired Dave Dombrowski after winning a World Series. That would have been a lunatic move. So I think that for Henry, he was sort of tra- trapped between a rock and a hard place where he knew that this guy wasn't the right guy after the World Series, but optically could not fire a guy who just won the World Series. Well, the optics of the way they did do it were just pristine. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> um, the, the right thing to do would figure like to figure out some way where you could cut his nuts off as a GM while retaining him for next year, and just not allow him to make these signings. You know that would that would have been the right move, and then quietly get rid of him after this season. Um, but I think that there was just too much built up goodwill there that I felt. I think John Henry kind of felt trapped, like he couldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, and it did that with Charrington. I mean, understanding that, I mean, with all due respect to Charrington, Tombo's balls are a bit bigger than Charrington's. <laughs> but, I mean, they had done it before, so it wouldn't, I mean, that probably would have been the line that, I mean, if they wanted to go in a certain direction, if they put the clamps down on Dombo, either he would have fallen in line or he would have left, and then they would have been in a position that they wanted to be in. Yeah, I suppose you're right. I mean, by by putting those ultimatums in there, you would have forced him to make a choice. So, right. Yeah. I mean, they did that with Charrington, right? By putting Bombo right. over him. Which is why that argument that he made during his press conference was so ridiculous. He was like, well, you know, we came in here as new owners and got rid of Ducat because, like, Ducat wasn't our guy. So that doesn't count. And we're like, yeah, all right, <laughs> that, that makes sense. Like, you know, they're right. Like, it doesn't count. He was there. So you need to get your guy. So fine. He doesn't count. But like Charrington, you put a guy above him when he was in charge. So like what else can he do? So that one definitely counts. And then Dombrowski definitely counts. So like and the Epstein thing, Lucchino was a legitimate lunatic, a crazy person for years. So I wouldn't want to go to work with that guy either. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I get that he has all these little opt-outs that he can say, no, nah, we didn't do that. But, like, you created a work environment that was near impossible for these people to thrive, I think. Yep, I agree. All right, let's get to some listener questions here. Uh, our first listener question comes from Scott Nadell, and he says, What's Porcello's worth to the Red Sox and or other organizations? A guy that is going to pitch a whole bunch of innings really poorly. Uh, but not tax your bullpen. I disagree with Keaton's future <laughs> assessment. Um, he's not going to pitch a whole lot of innings very poorly. He's going to pitch them mediocrely, mediocrity-ish. I don't know. What 
the word is there. Um, but he's going to be an average pitcher. And I think he's someone the Red Sox should definitely explore bringing back on a one-year prove-it deal. One year, prove it for $3 million. I'm sold. You're really disrespecting him now. Uh, That was on purpose. Jeff Raymond has our next question. He says, we shouldn't trade bets, but if we do trade bets, what could we realistically expect in exchange for a one-year rental, and would it preclude us from resigning him in a year? I mean... I mean, technically no, uh, but realistically, yes. They, they would not be able to. I mean, if he if they trade him, he's not coming back on on a contract unless they offer him trout money. But I wouldn't expect much for a one year rental. Like, I mean, I know he is like a top. I mean, Acuna and Soto are really freaking good and really freaking young. So I mean, I'm. He's a top four for sure in uh, some order between two, three, and four is where he falls uh, player in the major leagues. But it's a one-year rental, so teams aren't going to give up much for him. And specifically because unlike um, like other rentals like um, Machado, even though he ultimately signed with someone other than who he was traded to, Betts has made it clear that he's, like, not going to be traded somewhere and then sign an extension. Like, he's going to free agency. So there's no assurances for whoever the Red Sox trade him to um, for them to, like, pony up something serious. So, honestly, their best chance might be to target someone who um, also has, like, a pitcher who's in their last year of arbitration, but they need help with a bat and just try and do like a one-for-one swap. That's an interesting take. Uh, I haven't heard that one before, but I do understand that. Um, that could prevent you from having to go to the free agent market and starting pitching. Um, I think the hard thing about this is the fact that whoever trades for him is going to owe him $30 bucks next year too. So yep, he's just too. really, really expensive. I do think if it's a pure prospect trade that you're getting two top 50 prospects back for him. Um, and I don't think that he would come back. Uh, I Trapman is the only person who's ever done that, as far as I can remember, like in my lifetime, who has been traded for a meaningful piece and then brought back the next year. And obviously it would be the fucking Yankees that did that. Yeah, there were selfish mitigating circumstances that led to that. And the Cubs won a World Series, though, so they don't care. Yeah. Mark Anderson has our next question. He says, can Endeavor's extension announced on April 1st not affect the salary calculations for 2020? That's yes. a really good question. It depends it's, on how it's announced. I don't, uh, know the, I don't know about this. It depends on if it's a restructure or announced. So if, it's, if it is an extension that buys out uh, his future years of arbitration, then he would be paid whatever his, um, I believe, team control would be. Um, is he first year arbitration or is he still team control? He's still team control. Yeah. His last year of team control, he would get paid and then they can buy out his arbitration years if it's announced as an extension. 
But if it is a restructure, then they can wipe out his team control year for this year and give him a raise to whatever that restructured contract would be. And then that would affect the 2020 salary. Yeah, that's an interesting question. They're going to have to do some uh, some real salary stuff. That's a, that's a Brian O'Halloran special right there. That's something that he's going to have to try and see if he can figure out. Because that would be a really nice way to keep them in a good financial position for next year and still get that extension done. Yeah. Uh, last one here. Kaysen Sirois um, says, what would it take to get Billy Bean to Boston and thoughts on the ownership's payroll slash? Uh, so we already gave lots of thoughts on the payroll slash, but Billy Bean is not coming to Boston because he owns part of the Oakland Athletics. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I think, I mean, once he turned him down in, what was it, 2001, 2003? Yeah. I mean, they offered him, like, the world to come right. to Boston, and he was like... Nah, I'm feeling the West Coast and yeah, feeling the West Coast and that small market lifestyle. And so, I mean, if what they offered him, there's no way that they could make that offer again. So if he didn't take it, then he's not taking it now. This is why I want David Forst so bad, because he's the next best thing to Billy Bean. Yeah. You've brought Uh, me around on him. I'm actually, I'm rooting for that to be the option. Nice. Or one of my three. I like it. Well, that's our show today, peoples. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We're going to be back with you a lot during this off season in terms of uh, trying to bring you uh, all the off season goodies, and we're going to do a lot of unpacking what happened this season, individual performances, deep looks at guys. We'll go through the roster, comb with a fine comb, look at everybody one by one. So stay with us in the off season. We'll be with you a lot, and. Uh, you know, Keaton and I are going to stick together here. We're going to make sure that we grow this thing heading into next year and bring you a bigger and better podcast as we move forward. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks.